A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What was the 16th century ideal of beauty for women? Should one be fat or thin? Blonde or brunette? Pale or tanned? How did women keep clean? Did Renaissance women remove their body hair? What did they do if they had lice or ringworm or leprous sores that spoiled their looks? Jill Burke is a professor of Renaissance visual and material cultures at the University of Edinburgh. She's the author of The Italian Renaissance Nude and is just finishing a book about how people in the Renaissance tried to look good. How to be a Renaissance woman. It will be out next year. A few years ago, Professor Burke stumbled across an extraordinary 16th century volume. Some 750 pages thick and written in Italian, it contains over 1,400 cosmetic recipes. And it also gives a very clear idea of the ideals of beauty and the dilemmas over beauty that existed in 16th century Italy. So I'm delighted that she joins me today to introduce this amazing work and to share some Renaissance beauty secrets ahead of next year's publication. Jill, this book that you are finishing up sounds so exciting. I can't wait to read it. So tell me about the source that you're working from. So you've discovered this amazing book. Tell us about it. Well, it's a book that was written in 1562 by an Italian physician, a doctor called Giovanni Marinello. And the book's called, in English, The Ornaments of Women. And basically, it's a book of beauty tips. It's about 400 pages or so, and it has over 1,200 recipes for beautification of the hair and body and face. So it has things like shampoo and conditioner or moisturiser, anti-wrinkle cream. It has dieting tips. It has everything that you could find basically in a makeup counter or a personal care aisle of boots. It has recipes for these things. And it also tells women the kind of look that they should seek to achieve. So it tells them what kind of hair they should have, what kind of body shape, what kind of facial features and what kind of skin. Although since I've done research, I've found other books that are similar. It was certainly the first book, I think the earliest book that was like this. And it felt really quite exciting and quite unique and not like something I'd really read before. So I thought I'd write a book about the book (laughs) and also about women's responses to beauty, particularly how women felt about being under these pressures of appearing in a certain way. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a dimension of this period that I've only fleetingly thought about. I mean, I know that there was some pressure on, you know, Italian women to have blonde hair, for example, or we know about Elizabeth I makeup. But I think that's about the extent of me thinking about the beauty pressures. Why do you think this isn't better known? I think it got caught between two different kind of approaches to history. So we've had such wonderful work on women in this period, as you know, both in Italy and all over Europe and beyond. And this is really pioneered in the 70s by feminist historians. And we're very grateful inheritors in a way. But there was also, I think, still this idea that makeup and cosmetics and interest in beauty was somehow anti-feminist. And they certainly thought this in the Renaissance. A lot of feminists think this now. And so somehow people didn't look at these issues. And you're not the only person who's surprised about this. I was surprised when I found all this material. And once you start looking, it's like a lot of things. Once you start researching, you start to see things everywhere. So I think that's possibly why it hasn't been looked at. I should say there's been some really excellent work by people like Farah Kareem Cooper on stage makeup and particularly Elizabeth I's white face. But there's been much less on just everyday things like moisturiser or deodorant or things like that, which I had no idea. (laughs) I really hadn't thought about this existing, but there's a lot of sources about it. I can't wait to hear some of these ideas about how to meet them. But I guess, first of all, let's have a think about the context, because this is a period in which the so-called woman question is a hot topic of debate. How does that relate to your work? Right, so the woman question is a kind of series of debates that was happening from the early 15th century right through to the 17th century and was something that was a hot topic across Europe, wasn't it? And it was mainly men discussing what the nature of women were like. So are women more stupid than men? Are they more pious than men? And one of the things that came up very strongly in the woman question literature is a discussion of women's beauty. And so a lot of pro-female literature discusses beauty as something that is a real positive that women possess in a better way or in a greater quantity than men. So women are more beautiful than men. This starts to kind of go into more prescriptive literature and there starts to be this idea that women should be beautiful for men, otherwise men could just leave their not beautiful wives and go off with other women. And this is something that in the Italian literature, and I suspect in other places too, comes up again and again and again as you go through the 16th and into the early 17th century. And so it starts to be women's, not just a good quality of women that they're beautiful, but a duty of women, and particularly wives and women who are going to be brides who are looking for husbands to be beautiful as well. And there's a very prescriptive idea of beauty as well, as you say. So these pressures on women in the Renaissance are greater in a way, I would say, and more socially important. I mean, people might feel that's true today, but in the Renaissance, it certainly was very important for women to look a certain way. And how does it feel, therefore, to be working on a male author who's prescribing as well? Or is that unfair to Marinello? Oh, no, it's not unfair. (laughs) It's quite complex. He feels that he is helping women. So he feels that he is helping women to increase the fidelity of their husbands, for example. And he also feels he's helping women have cosmetics that aren't dangerous. Because as you know, they were using lead, mercury, they use very caustic ingredients sometimes. 
cosmetics that are dangerous and he feels even though he also uses sometimes dangerous ingredients he feels that because he's a physician he can show women how to use these cosmetics safely now for us this might feel incredibly patronizing but there's two things i think that save marinello first of all in the same year he published a book on women's health that was designed for women, wives and midwives, to think about how they should safely have children, about conception. And in that, he talks about husbands, you know, he says to husbands, you must treat your wives kindly. There's some really good things in that book. The other thing that says Marinella is he had this amazing daughter called Lucrezia Marinella, who was very well educated, who went on to write a very important treatise on the superiority of women to men. And this suggests actually that Marinella was interested, was part of that humanist movement that educated girls. So although it's clear from the text that he's not some kind of incredible feminist, he does seem to have women's interests at heart. And the other thing that I'm trying to do is, although Marinello is a text around which this book is based, I'm just using as many sources written by women, painted by women, made by women as possible. Now we're so lucky because there's so many fabulous sources that are available and have been published that are by women that are available to us. So I've been looking through those, looking for things related to beauty as well, to kind of balance the fact that it's based around this book, because that's exactly right. There is this contradiction, if you like. You've got this wonderful mix of sources with Marinello and with other things you can draw on. And you've written elsewhere about this being an age in which you see lots of nude bodies in art. So let's get into the nitty gritty. What is the beauty ideal for women in this period? Okay, so women should have golden blonde hair that's wavy, not too curly, but wavy. They should have a high forehead and dark eyes, so dark brown eyes, golden hair. Their skin should be white, but with some hints of pink, so rosy cheeks. And in terms of their bodies, they should have broad shoulders, fleshy arms, fleshy legs, and broad hips. They like broad hips and a tummy. So plump, golden haired, and white skinned basically is the ideal. So it's quite different from many modern day ideas of what's attractive. I remember reading Lyndall Roper once said that she thought that because women were pregnant so often in this period that it influenced the aesthetic and that maybe explains why the tummy was so fashionable. Mm -hmm. I have wondered about that as well in terms of, you know, you look at especially some of the Northern European imagery, the German imagery, which is why maybe Lyndall Roper was thinking about this, has these women with these quite poochy stomachs, that really rounded bellies. And I think that was more fashionable because the kind of physique that was fashionable changes a little bit from the 15th to the 16th centuries. By the time you get to the mid-16th century, it's really based on the physique of Venus sculptures. So if you look at some of the classical Venus sculptures, like the famous one after Praxiteles, they have this, it's not quite hourglass, but certainly these broad hips and these thighs and arms are quite fleshy. So I think art does influence life and art does influence the kind of taste that men have in women. But certainly women being pregnant, you would have thought it influenced people. Though actually in Marinello, he has many recipes for stretch marks and he talks about bellies being wrinkled and that being an undesirable thing. I think for a lot of women, some women like the women in the Medici family were pregnant 
constantly just had a baby and then became pregnant almost immediately so I think it must have been actually really difficult for some pregnant women to keep in shape so I'm not sure about the pregnancy thing. So if you've got this ideal body shape what were women advised to do to achieve it? Right so a section of Marinella's book tells women how they should get their bodies to be in proportion and how they should be the right level of fatness So I think thinness was a real problem in the Renaissance. Some people are too fat. So Isabella d'Este, for example, who was the Marchioness of Mantua in the early 16th century, she complains about being too fat quite a lot of the time and tells her husband off for sending her a gift of partridges because they were fattening and things like that. So there are people who felt they were too fat in the Renaissance. But thinness seemed to have been a bigger problem. And you can understand why, because of lots of awful wasting and illnesses, smallpox, and then, of course, there's a lack of availability of good quality food sometimes. So to get fatter, you had to do a series of things. And this is all based on the humoral system and the idea that the body is governed by four different liquids or humours and an idea to manipulate them that you can do six different things. So, for example, sleep is good for getting fatter, as is not exercising very much. So I like this beauty regime so far. Oh, it gets better. As is having a lovely warm room that is scented nicely. He says maybe gentle dancing or something like that. You can walk around, but only gently. Eating things like nuts and honey and fattening birds, milk, he says, cream, all good stuff. And also not being melancholy. It's very important to be happy. So you should have people telling you jokes and listening to fun music and things like that as well. It's amazing, isn't it? The humoral system, sometimes it sort of explodes my mind that you have to think about this idea that being mirthful is the way to get the right physique, which is to be a bit plump. I mean, this is a wonderful series of connections. Yeah, and it runs through. And sometimes, kind of coincidentally, it happens upon things that work. So this is obviously one of the reasons why it lasted for centuries. We're talking about the humoral system was dominant. And so eating a lot of butter and nuts and honey will make you fat, (laughs) presumably if you keep on doing it. And I can imagine melancholy or lots of concern could make you thinner. And again, Isabella d'Este told her husband that the reason she was fat is because he didn't entrust her with affairs of state. That if he allowed her to do more work for the state, then then she'd get thinner. So you can see how these kinds of things intuitively might make sense, even if they're based on completely wrong premises. I mean, also, he did things like, you know, if you want to get your arms to become in proportion with the rest of your body and to become thinner, you have to stop their nutrition. And so he said things like, you know, you have to bleed yourself. Form Renaissance medicine starts with purging of some kind, including bleeding. But you also suggested wrapping like ligatures around the top of your arms, for example, if you wanted your arms to get thinner in order to stop blood getting there. So some of it is absolutely terrible. <laughs> like, so a lot of the advice, you read it and you think, oh, please, women reading this book, please don't follow this advice. And actually, I haven't found any, because I've been looking also at versions of the book and notes to see which recipes were followed the most, you know, little dots or annotations on the text. And not many people strapped up their arms with ligatures to stop them being fat. So I think that's probably quite a good thing. That's very interesting to think about marginalia and people's comments on things. 
Oh, yeah, it's really fascinating. A lot of copies of this book have been written on in one way or another. So you get things like people writing false in the margin against recipes. That was for a recipe to change eye colour from blue to brown, which Marinella suggests you should put ink in your eye to do that. Oh, goodness me. Don't try this at home, folks. (laughs) Exactly. False, though. It's completely false. So one of the things that is often annotated is a recipe for lemon balm and wine that's meant to get rid of scabies. This is annotated all the way through. Scabies is something that I've fortunately never had, but friends have had. It's a very itchy skin rash caused by tiny little bugs. Apparently scabies was a massive problem in the Renaissance, according to the book. Other things that get annotated a lot are this stretch marks, anti-aging, things for wrinkles a lot. So some of the concerns that they have are really similar and some are very different. You also mentioned being in a sweet-smelling room and one of the things that strikes me about this period, and I remember reading the wonderful Ian Mortimer's Time Traveller's Guides and thinking about this, this is probably a foul-smelling age, right? (laughs) But smelling nice does come up quite a lot as being important. At the same time as bathing, as far as I'm aware, often is thought of as dangerous. So are Renaissance women keeping clean? Are they scenting themselves? How are they smelling? Well, Marinello recommends bathing once a week. There's this idea that people stop bathing in the Renaissance, and there is evidence actually in the 16th century, absolutely, that particularly in France anyway, that people start to think, oh, you know, water's dangerous. It's good reasons to think that bathhouses are not good places to be in terms of infectious disease. But in Italy, it seems that people maybe were bathing more. Certainly there's a lot of private bathrooms in very rich people's houses, and the bathhouses in Venice and Florence and Rome, it seems, carried on going. And I think maybe it's because there's more of a Mediterranean tradition. So you cross the other side of the Mediterranean in North Africa, Turkey, there's a massive, important Islamic tradition of bathing. And I think this maybe in southern Europe carries on more than it does in the north. So I am going to venture to say, even though I'm not sure it's absolutely true, that southern Europeans were cleaner, <laughs> were <laughs> bathed more at least than their northern counterparts. But also one of the things, you know, when we've tried some of these recipes, one of the interesting things about Renaissance perfume is how strong it is. So musk, for example, was often used as a base note. Musked rose water is something they tend to use a lot, I think, all over the place. And it's quite strong. It's quite a heady scent. So clearly people were covering up scents as well. And I suppose the other thing that we should think about is clothes washing. I mean, how often were people washing their clothes? Not very often, probably. So even if people in Italy were washing more than maybe... English people, (laughs) there certainly would have been more smelly. And the streets, of course, were more smelly. Just being outside, you know, sewage, everyday smells that we kind of have taken away from us (laughs) in various ways were more smelly. So one of the things that, you know, I'd like to try as we go along is to make more of the perfume recipes up. There's a great recipe that's going to be in the book that you can make at home with sage, roses and lavender that you can use as a body wash that really does make your skin smell really quite lovely (laughs) so yeah i don't think all women smell awful well i'm looking forward to that recipe okay tristan you've got 50 seconds go right so dan's given me a few seconds to sell the ancients podcast What is the ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. 
This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. slightly personal sort of question but did renaissance women remove their body hair <laughs> yes yes they did and again there's slight differences depending on where you were and i think again this is related to how near you are to the mediterranean certainly italian women were encouraged to remove their body hair from the neck downwards all body hair and they did so often at the baths. There were people who were at the baths who would help them out. These would be normal women. And they'd use a paste that was called rusma, made up of arsenic and quicklime. So dangerous. But it works really, you know, in the same way as chemical depilatories do today. So it's very, very alkaline. So it melts away the hair. And you'd have that on and different texts say different lengths of time. So this text by Katarina Swartzer says you have to say six Hail Marys, I think it is. Then you have to take it off quickly, otherwise this flesh will start to come off. So <laughs> a lot of these ladies had servants, of course, you would sprinkle them with water. And those other recipes as well. I haven't really come across for facial hair and things. You could use tree gums and use basically a wax strip which would presumably work fine. But then there's other recipes for things like put ants' eggs on it or cat poo on it, which won't work. Really? I wonder why not? (laughs) (laughs) So I haven't tested those, but certainly in Italy and France, they remove body hair and in Holland too. In England, so there's translations of Italian recipes that go into English. There's a book that was very popular at the time by Alessio Piemontese, which was translated into English. And that translates all the recipes for body hair that say, oh, this is for young men to remove their beards. When in the Italian edition, they're clearly for women. So I think in England, people probably didn't remove their body hair. And in Germany, it was associated with witches. When people were suspected of witchcraft, they'd remove all their body hair in order to check that they didn't have any hidden amulets in their 
pubic hair or whatever. And so in Germany, it's associated with kind of shameful things. I wonder if the same is true in England. (laughs) What did they think about hair on the head? You said they think it should be fair and it should be wavy, but not too curly. How did they keep their locks luscious? Oh, well, there's loads of conditioner recipes. I'm making one at the moment for my (laughs) mother-in-law. He told me that it was the best conditioner that she's ever had. Do tell, do tell. Yes. So it's made out of mallow root, so the root of mallow plants, psyllium and willow leaves. And you boil them all up together and they (laughs) create this kind of horrendous mucus, which... (laughs) It's just awful. The first time I, I, I oh, no, I'm not going to put that on my head. But of course I did put it on my head. And found out it actually does work as conditioner. It's kind of a leave-in conditioner. So you wash your hair as normal and then you stroke a little bit. You don't need much. You put it on and it does actually work. So they had that kind of thing. They washed their hair in chamomile and all this kind of stuff. So the hair recipes for things like conditioner actually are quite good to try and are quite interesting. Of course, they also bleach their hair. Italian women don't generally have blonde hair. And so there's a lot of famous recipes that Venetian women used to bleach their hair that kind of travelled across Europe. And they use the same things that you were used to bleach fabric. So a lot of really harsh bleaches. I haven't tried those either. And they're the things that probably actually worked. There has been somebody in the States who's tried some of the bleaches and they don't work very well at all, actually. That's stuff like chamomile as well, lemon juice, this kind of thing that they used. They also used henna a little bit to redden hair. They used things like gall acorns for the same kind of thing that you use in ink to dye hair black as well. So there's a big range of hair dyes, some of which is more palatable than others. What suggestions does Marinella make to improve one's face? (laughs) The face chapter is probably the biggest and there's hundreds of recipes in it. So Some of the suggestions are, you know, how to make your eyes bigger and smaller. They're just crazy because they don't have eye makeup. This is literally, if you kind of wear an eye patch, you'll make one eye bigger and one eye smaller. He thinks that eyes get bigger if you look at a lot of light, for example. So that's all silly. But he also makes suggestions for things like how to eyebrow colour. He uses walnut ash. That works. For lips, he suggests beetroot as a lip colour. He has many recipes for moisturiser that tend to include things like goose fat and mastic or other tree gums and they can actually make really nice moisturisers things like lip salve wax and rose oil again that makes a really perfectly lovely lip salve but the main part of the book that's about hiding things on your face hiding pockmarks hiding spots hiding bruises and making your face whiter white clean and shining you know that kind of thing is what they're interested in he's very keen on recipes that don't include white lead because it was known at the time that white lead was damaging to the skin so he has lots of ideas for recipes that include things like marble deer antlers things like that always go into a powder and that can be applied to the face i didn't know that they knew that white lead was dangerous at the time That's interesting. They knew that mercury was dangerous. They knew a lot of the things that were commonly used. Mercury particularly, you know, has effects on teeth and things. So they knew that certain types of substance weren't good for you, particularly after long use. You know, if you use a lot of these substances on your skin, it starts to have a bad effect on the skin. You start to look more lined and things after a while. So they did understand it was ageing. I'm not sure they understood it would kill you, but they did understand that it would eventually harm your appearance. 
One of the things about whiteness is that this is in an Italy that is really multicultural and it's interesting now I think people are talking more about this and I think this is starting with Kim Hall's book that came out in the mid-90s and she talks about this emphasis on white skin not you know because the populations were all white but because you start to get slaves there's a lot of slaves in Italy from sub-Saharan Africa and from North Africa who have darker skin and so you start to get these tropes as well then of paintings of splendidly white mistresses and their dark-skinned servants as well knowing this idea of white skin it is to do with early ideas of racial distinction Yes, it's very interesting, isn't it, that we've got these very, very clear ideas about the colour of skin, which are being fed into a kind of economic system that is going to Mm -hmm. benefit people who are white. And so, you know, you've got all the potent ingredients necessary to create racism, Mm -hmm. really. Yeah, and beauty, what is understood to be beautiful, is a very important part of racism. It's really important to think about that. And it's interesting in terms of the history of cosmetics, of beauty and of beautification. Black women scholars have been massively important, more for the 20th century. um, But Kim Hall, I mentioned, is obviously a Renaissance scholar. But there's just wonderful work like Maxine Craig and other women who've done really important work on this history. And it's really due to them that this is a field. So I think that it's very important to think about this interrelationship between beauty and all sorts of categories of race and of class as well, and who is included and who is excluded, even from the conversation. You know, people are just excluded from the conversation. This book that I'm looking at, Marinello's book, is really aimed at aristocratic women, you know, women who could read, (laughs) but also, you know, women who had maids. There's an assumption that you'd have maids, for example. Now, one woman who certainly did have maids and who was very proud of her long white fingers was Elizabeth I. So what did Marinello think one did to get flawless hands? (laughs) You have to have white skin, you have to have long tapering fingers, hands incredibly erotic looking in the Renaissance because they were often covered with gloves, of course. There's an intimacy to hands that there isn't now. So for hands, similar things to faces, really. He thought they should be white and some of the creams that he has have similar things in, like mastic, things like goose fat or other animal fats. And he also gives a lot of advice for scented glove linings. So... People would line their gloves with ointments that were scented to keep their hands soft and to keep them white. And obviously, this is advice for women who don't work (laughs) with their hands, which is a minority of women, but the women who we tend to know the most about. So, yeah, wear your gloves, keep your hands moisturised, keep them out of the sun. He has quite a lot of advice about sunscreens as well, just in case you have to be in the sun, which obviously in Italy is probably more of a problem in England. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure that's true. Moving down the body, as far as I know, I remember there was one example found in Germany, but up until that point, we hadn't found anything like a bra that women would have been wearing. So what did he have to say about how a woman should look in terms of her breasts? Well, I think that bra that was found is absolutely fascinating. I've been looking. (laughs) I think they found three bras at the same site. And there's an archaeologist called Beatrice Nutt who's been looking at it. What people have are these very tight bodices. Marinella suggests breast binding. 
breasts should be small in this period and separate and look like apples they don't have a cleavage so there's kind of this idea of this rather hard round breast somewhere just near your armpits you know and to to maintain this he suggests that girls from adolescence from just pre-adolescence have their breasts bound to keep their breasts small with bandages with things like cumin on the wrapped bandages how interesting so the shape that we're looking for apart from the slightly bigger arms perhaps we're very much going with pear aren't we yeah well actually you've talked about stomachs what did they think about buttocks are they pro buttocks (laughs) they're pro buttocks (laughs) very pro buttocks fleshy fleshy buttocks fleshy but not too fat because that's vulgar that's what he says in the text it's a difficult line to walk, isn't it? Especially, but not <laughs> yeah. too fast. I mean, honestly, all of it is completely impossible. The kind of look that you have to attain is written in the prefaces. So if you just read through the prefaces to each chapter, you get the idea of what women should look. And it's all like this. It's all like fleshy, but not too fat. It's this and that, and not too that. And, and, you know, everything is like, how could I possibly ever attain this? I mean, the question is who's looking as well at people's buttocks? Because this must be presumably aimed at husbands and wives yes because otherwise people wouldn't be able to see them the whole point of the clothing is that it creates the illusion of ample hips and bottoms but no one else can see a woman's bottom exactly and even i'm not sure that husbands were meant to be looking at women's bottoms in this period there's a lot of descriptive literature that i looked at for my book on the nude that said you know women should just keep themselves hidden at all times so Who's doing the looking at all these buttocks? Are you encouraging it by talking about them in a book form like this? Do you think Marinello is in some ways fantasising by writing this description? I wonder if a lot of Marinello's audience was male. There's a genre of painting called women at their toilet paintings, which show women often doing something with their hair or a sponge or something, and they're sitting in front of a mirror and they're getting ready basically to present themselves to the world. So it's women in a secret place. And so I think there's a kind of interest and titillation that men had relating to women's makeup. I suppose it's carried on with this kind of idea of fantasising about women's changing rooms, you know? This is idea that men, by reading this book, might have special access to women's bodies that they wouldn't normally have because respectable women might keep themselves covered up even from their husbands. So I do wonder if there's an element of titillation. And certainly in his other book on women's health, which does talk directly about things like foreplay, for example, in a way that would very much be frowned upon by the church. But this is the time in publishing in Venice where you're getting a lot of erotica being published as well by people like Pietro Aretino. And in fact, Venice is notorious as a place where you can buy this kind of book. So I wonder if there's an element of titillation in all of this. But you've also had a look at what Renaissance women thought about all this. So what did they think about beauty? They argue about it. They don't think one thing. And I think that's really important to understand that women don't agree with each other just because they're women and often have very different ideas. So you get, particularly in the earlier period, in the 15th century, humanists like Lara Chirata write letters berating other women for caring too much about beauty and not spending that time on reading and on writing and understanding humanist texts. So you get that side of things. 
Then later on, there's a great collective letter from women in a town in Emilia-Romagna that demands that they should be allowed to wear ornaments. So this is more jewellery and hair ornaments and so on because they are not allowed to be involved in matters of state. And so the only thing that they can bring to the public good is their beauty. So there's these women. And then there's, again, other women like Moderata Fonte, who's a feminist writer whose book on the merit of women came out in 1600. She says, men, why are you so interested in what women do with their looks? Why do you care if women decide to wear makeup or do things with their hair? It's nothing to do with you. And who cares? And Lucrezia Marinella, Marinella's daughter too, also says, you know, there's no harm in women using face washes to make their skin brighter. But all of the women who write about this tend to say, but you shouldn't wear a lot of foundation. You shouldn't have this kind of mask. So they draw a line at using a lot of colour in makeup and this idea that you can use too much foundation and then you look foolish so that you can do makeup wrongly is very present in the Italian sources by female authors. So there's no one line, but a lot of women, certainly as the 16th century goes on, are just fed up of men getting overly involved in this not surprisingly because a lot of men a lot of churchmen particularly who get furious with the idea that women are deceiving men into marrying them by wearing makeup and things like that so there's a lot of hostility towards cosmetic culture yes that's what i found for my work on huguenots or calvinists in france which is very much that hostility to wearing rouge and all that sort of stuff and to ornamenting themselves because of that element of deception, I think. Mm -hmm. I think as the 16th century wears on and you go into the 17th century, this becomes much bigger and it is related to reform, I think. Catholic reform, of course, in Italy, but also the suspicion of ornament generally, not just makeup, but ornament and clothing as well. It becomes much stronger, as I think, as you go into the 17th century in Italy as well, you know, even in the Catholic setting. But there's this moment, and actually the moment where makeup is, you know, when medics, for example, are looking at makeup and are looking at cosmetic surgery and things like that in the 16th century, and beauty is something that's taken seriously, it's also a moment where there's a lot of women's voices flourishing. A lot of people think that this takes a step back as the Counter-Reformation gets into full swing in the 17th century. So mapping this, that would be something that would be very interesting to do. Mapping tolerance towards cosmetic practice and ideas of femininity is work that I haven't done, but it would be wonderful to do this across Europe, for example. Well, you've already shared some amazing Renaissance beauty secrets. Before you go, can you give us just one more of your sort of cosmetic recipes? Oh, I can give you my very favourite cosmetic recipe because it's very, very easy. And it's for under eye cream. And what you have to do, Marinella says, is take a hard boiled egg and take out the yolk and add honey, make it into a paste and then put it on your face, under your eyes and on your face and leave it for a little while and then wash it off with warm water. And it actually does work. It does make your face feel better. And Marinella at the end says, what more can you want? And I think it's true. (laughs) What more can you want? Something that's very easy and actually seems to work. That sounds splendid. And I, for one, am taking to heart the messages about not being melancholy, sleeping lots, not doing too much exercise and eating lots of nice things. So there has been some good advice amongst it all. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for sharing this research with us. So How to Be a Renaissance Woman will be out next year. Yes, that's right. Okay, watch this space, people, and buy this book. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.